have to say it feels pretty good. Sanctuary's mostly full. There's a choir of angels that sing down upon us again. There were days over the last year that you wondered, right? What was it going to feel like when we were all able to come back in this sanctuary and sort of squeeze in? Was it going to be filled? I think we should just take a moment to appreciate this place, to appreciate where we are on this Sunday in June, that we have our grandkids and that we have uh, our family members. We even have some visitors uh, sitting next to us in the pews this morning. What, What a gift it is. So friends, wherever you come from this day, I just want to say thank you. And we're so glad you're here. Several weeks ago, Emma Giggy, a child of this church, uh, made an appointment to come and visit with me. Emma was uh, about to leave on our college pilgrimage. It was the first time we had ever done a a college pilgrimage. It was when our college students were going to take a train, yeah, a real-life train from Chicago all the way to the Grand Canyon. They were uh, not going to have their laptops, their iPads, or their cell phones for the entire trip. They were going to have one another, they were going to have silence, and they were going to have um, holy text. Emma came to visit with me just a few days before she was set to go on this college pilgrimage. And can I say what a gift it is to have a thriving college ministry? What a gift it is to be a part of a church where our college students want to grow spiritually. Anyway, Emma came to visit with me, and uh, she has just finished her freshman year at the College of Charleston. They're in the great state of South Carolina. And (laughs) Emma came, came by to visit, and she had to endure 30 minutes of interrogation from me. I wanted to know all about her classes. I wanted to know about student life. I wanted to know about COVID protocols. I wanted to know about the reading list found on all her syllabi, her syllabuses, syllabi. I wanted to know about what classes she was taking next semester, and I wanted to know about the summer. She endured 30 minutes of these questions, and then we finally got to, so Emma, what are you reading? What are you going to do this summer? And she said, well, Matthew, I have a goal. I said, what is that? She said, my goal is to read all four Gospels this summer. And I said, what? She said, yeah, my goal is to read all four of the Gospels this summer. I said, why? She said, because I want to grow spiritually. And I figured the Gospels were a good place to start. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but I, my goal the summer after my freshman year of college was not to read all four of the Gospels. I said, Emma, that's really interesting. I was turned on to the scholarship of a man named Alexander John Shia 10 years ago, and he argues that we don't actually have four Gospels. We have one Gospel told in four ways. And Emma said, wait, what? I said, yeah, he says that we don't, actually don't have four Gospels. We have one Gospel told from four different perspectives. She said, I want to know more about that. I said, well, think about it. When the early Christians gathered, uh, they didn't come into a sanctuary, listen to somebody in a black robe who said, turn to the Gospel of Luke this morning. They didn't have a Bible. They, these early group of Christians, in fact, didn't even have Gospels. She was like, wait a second, I was confirmed in the church and I don't know this. What are you talking about? And I said, well, you have to remember, the Gospels weren't written until much later. And Alexander John Shia says the Gospels were written in response to particular context. Uh, They were written in response to particular historical 
factors in that moment. They were written in response to needs found in the community. And she goes, wait one second. Why have you been holding back on me? And I said, wait a second. I said, I haven't been holding back on you. She says, this is the first time ever I'm ever hearing any of this. She goes, I want to know more. You should do a sermon series about this. I said, that's funny you say that. I have a series outlined in my sermon series planning folder, but I've just never done it. She said, you should do it. I said, when? She said, now. Friends, here we are. (laughs) Next four weeks, we're going to explore one gospel written from four perspectives. Matthew, Mark, John, Bill, Luke. I'm entitling this sermon series, Dusk, Dark, Dawn, Day. I'm entitling this series very intentionally because I believe creation reflects back the truths that we find in the Gospels every single day. And creation reflects back every day the seasons of our life. And so this morning we're going to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Alexander John Shia says the Gospel of Matthew is written to answer this question for the early Christian community. How do we face change? All right, Presbyterians, I said it. Everyone regroup. I said change. (laughs) Early Christians read these Gospels in a particular order. They started with Matthew with the intention of answering this question, how do we face change? This is what I want to do. I'm going to read uh, our gospel lesson this morning from the Beatitudes. Beatitudes, supreme blessing. I'm going to read from uh, our Beatitudes. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give us historical context. I'm going to help us then unpack how that historical context is true for us now. I'm going to invite us then to consider how uh, the gospel of Matthew written in this way begins to address how we begin to answer that question in our lives. Then I'm going to close by going back to the Beatitudes with a lesson that Jeannie Corbett, our Moni pastoral resident, taught me this week. That's where we're headed this morning. If you are the type who likes to follow along with the scripture lesson, I'm going to ask you to resist doing that this morning. I want you to listen. Listen to these supreme blessings offered from Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and they began to speak and taught them, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you. When people revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, 
For your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Awaken us, O God, to your spirit that hovers here. Your spirit that hovers in this very sanctuary, just as she hovered over the waters of creation. So reach across the ages and breathe new life into these ancient words that they would be your word to us here and now. And breathe new life, O God, into the words of my mouth and into the meditations of all of our hearts that all would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Presbyterian College, I was a history major. I learned a lot of things, but I also learned that the old adage is in fact true, Katie, that if we don't know our history, history will repeat itself. We need to know our history. Jesus handed over the week of Passover, killed 30 AD. Peter One of the original 12 disciples, Jesus calls Peter, the rock on who I will build the church, begins to lead this early group of, weren't called Christians then, they were called followers of the way. In the year 36, there is a man named Saul. He is a Jewish zealot. Saul is walking down a road. We know it as the Emmaus Road. He is encountered by the Spirit of God. He has what we might call a conversion experience. Saul becomes Paul, and he begins planting churches, and he becomes the apostle Paul. In the year 50, this Paul, the apostle, begins writing letters to all these churches that he has planted. Turns out churches need to be encouraged. They need to know how to sort sort out their problems. They need to know how to live with one another when they disagree. That was true from the beginning. Paul begins writing letters. First letter from Paul in the year 50. Paul writes letters that we can account for. Uh, We have 13 of them in the New Testament from the year 50 to the year 64. How are we doing? Everybody with me? Good. In the year 64, he writes his last letter. These letters account for two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul then is handed over. He is executed in the year 67. All of the gospel accounts, except Mark, were written after Paul was executed. Paul is executed and something happens in the year 70 in Jerusalem that will change the landscape of the world and our religious tradition. In the year 70, three days before Passover, it is estimated to be on April the 17th in the year 70, the Roman Empire... uh, lays siege to Jerusalem. You know this, I'll remind us. Laying siege is a military tactic by which a military will surround an entire city, choke off precious resources to the people who live in that city. We're talking about food, water, wine, precious resources. When the resources are unable to get to the people and the people are brought to their knees, then the military comes in and takes over the city. It is estimated that the Roman uh, military laid siege to Jerusalem in the year 70 for five months. 
Some scholars say four months, three weeks, and four days. What started three days before Passover, and remember, Passover was the festival when Jerusalem would swell to three times her natural size. Four months, three weeks, four days later, the Roman military invades Jerusalem under these orders. Do not loot. Don't steal anything out of the temple. Don't steal anything out of people's homes. Burn it to the ground. If there is anything left over to be looted, you have not followed orders. So in the year 70, the Roman military does what they are commanded to do, and they burn Jerusalem to the ground. They go to the temple, second temple. It has been rebuilt a second time, and they burn that temple to the ground. They then take the priestly class, and they slaughter them. The temple, remember? The physical manifestation of God's presence on earth. The temple, God's promise made through Abraham, Abraham that God will never be apart from God's people. The people in the year 70 literally thought that they were living through an apocalypse. They literally thought the world was coming to an end. It was unannounced. They had no idea that it was coming and they were laid in darkness, asking the question, is there life on the other side of this? How will we know how to go on? Who are we now? Is God still with us? The temple the physical manifestation of their life that provided guidance, stability, a sense of place and purpose came, in the words of John Cougar Mellencamp, came crumbling down. Friends, is it not true that the walls come crumbling down in our lives and it's always unexpected? It's always unannounced, and it comes without warning. Something happens uh, in your marriage or your relationship. You get a phone call, and something happens uh, to your children. Uh, You can't sleep. Dark night of the soul, it begins just as a thought about, well, you know what? I think I could do this as a profession, and all of a sudden, all you can do is spend every waking moment thinking about not doing what you have to go to work and do. Or how about this, my dear friends? How about a global health pandemic that shuts everything down? Alexander John Shia says that the Gospel of Matthew that is written in the year 74, four years after Jerusalem has crumbled, is written to the, to the people who are beginning to ask this question, who are we now? How do we face change? Alexander Shia says the Gospel of Matthew is written to remind these group of believers that when the world sees an end, our faith says Endings are actually beginnings. Alexander Shia says the book of Matthew is uh, in part written to help us understand, to see that when we think we have come to the end of 
our lives, when the sun is setting at the dusk on a relationship, on a job, on the world as we know it, we will think we are coming to the end, but our faith is inviting us to remember we are actually coming upon a beginning. Alexander Shai, you've heard me say it this way, says it another way. The deepest darkness is not the place where grace, hope, love, mercy. The deepest darkness is not the place where grace, hope, love, mercy go to die. But the deepest darkness is the very place where grace, hope, love, and mercy go to be reborn. So when we uh, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, you open it uh, right there. Chapter 1, we typically skip over it. We skip over it because it's a genealogy. It is a list of names that we cannot pronounce, and it is a list of places that we don't know where they are. Right, Debbie? So we just say, oh yeah, those are all the people in the faith that are the lineage to Jesus. We should remember that the gospel writer is listing those people's names because if we do just a little bit of research, what we will come to find is Matthew is saying to us, the readers, uh, here is the lineage of people who came up on dead ends in their lives. They thought their life was over. And actually, they came to see that there was a new beginning. We skip over that because we want to get to Mary and Joseph. We get there in December. Just tell me about the birth story of Jesus. When we come to understand our history, we come to see the birth story of Jesus is actually less of a historical account of Jesus' birth and perhaps more of the interior, interior spiritual journey of what it means to meet the Christ when you feel like you've come upon an end. Uh, The good news comes to Joseph in the darkness. Joseph is uh, engaged to Mary, and this news comes to him that she is with child. We know that's a potential ending of a relationship, If he chooses to marry her, uh, that is a potential threat to his life. Uh, Mary, same. This news comes to her in the darkness. It is a potential ending, not only for her way of life, but literally for women in the first century, her in literal life. It's a story that says, oh, this threatens your relationship with Joseph. And what we see time and time and time and time again in the birth narrative is every ending is actually a possibility for a new beginning. They get to Bethlehem. They go to the inn. There's no room at the inn. Potential ending. But go to the stable. There's a new beginning. At the stable, they arrive They bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they say, do not go home the way that you got here, potential ending. You got to go home by a different route, a new beginning. Friends, when we come to see the historical context in which the book of Matthew is written, perhaps we will come to see that we can interact with gospel in a new way. Perhaps the gospel of Matthew is inviting us as we stand and face great change. 
When we are faced with what we think is an ending, we might see it as a beginning. I don't know about you, but when I am faced with these seasons in my life, I want them to be over as quickly as possible. When I am faced with an ending, just tell me where I'm headed. Just solve this. Let me know where I'm going. And let me know it's all going to be okay. You and I both know that it's never that way. Our life is an invitation to take the next right step, not knowing how things are going to end up. So therefore, what if we come to see the Beatitudes as a guide for how we take those first steps? Jeannie Corbett, our Moni pastoral resident here at the church, she's traveled to the Holy Land. In the Holy Land, there is a place called the Mount of the Beatitudes, the Mount of Supreme Blessings. She taught me this week that uh, on the top of that Mount of the Beatitudes are not a plaque with all the Beatitudes on it. No. On the Mount of the Beatitudes at the base and all along the path, there is a Beatitude and then another Beatitude. Then you walk a little more and you get up the hill, Carolyn, there's another Beatitude. It's as if the monastics who have put them there understand that we are going to need guidance and wisdom along the journey of change. So I want to go back to these Beatitudes. Listen to them now, knowing the historical context. Hear them now, thinking about all the places in your life where you are facing a change or you have faced a change, and think about how these Beatitudes might guide how we take the next step. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Some of you know the change of what it's like to lose a parent. You're facing the darkness of change, not knowing what the next right step is. Blessed are those who mourn, mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, Some of you are volunteering right now. You're uh, engaging in mission and ministry through PHPC Serves. You are going literally to places on the margins in our city. You are going to be transformed by your relationship with the meek. How do I face, what does this mean about my life and how I live? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Some of you are saying, I don't know. I feel like there's a deeper place in my faith life to go. Should I risk it? Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Some of you are in a relationship and you don't know how to move forward. Do you allow this to break trust? Or can we show mercy in a new way? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What is standing in the way in your life from seeing who God is? And can't you just hear this for those early Christians? Their whole world has come tumbling down. Blessed are those who are persecuted 
for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. My dear friends, I want to invite you to join Emma Giggy. Read the Gospel of Matthew this week. Read it with that lens. The lens of coming to know that your story, our faith, says that every time we see an ending, an ending is actually a beginning. Read it through the lens of how do we face change in our life. For the good news of the gospel is this. They persecuted Christ, put him on a cross, and thought it was the end of the story. Turns out it was just the beginning. May it be so throughout the ages, and may it take on a particular form for us this day. Will you pray with me? Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Help us to know, O oh God, that we face darkness not alone, but with the promise that you are with us, that even in our deepest darkness, it is the place that we come to know life anew. For we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.